everyone. Welcome back to another episode of the Spirit of Prophecy podcast. Day four, going through Pastor Ted Alexander's defense of pre-tribulationism and debunking of the pre-wrath position. And so yesterday, uh, we boy, it was very disappointing. We It was all built up to this proof that all seven years were God's wrath, and we had nothing at first, but then he kind of started to build up to a proof and the video ended up abruptly. So I went back and I checked, I went on his YouTube channel again, and that video just ends abruptly like that. So I don't know if he had some kind of technical difficulty and never fixed it, but we did not cut anything out. Okay. He wasn't about to have a mic drop moment, drop moment, and we just got rid of it. I, I've been leaving the link uh, to the playlist of these videos in the description of all these. So you can go watch them for yourself. I didn't cut anything out, but uh, he, boy, he really seemed like he was building up to something to prove all seven years was a wrath. And I was really hoping to hear a new argument because the truth is every time I hear a new argument, debunking pre-wrath or defending pre-trib, uh, typically, you know, it, I, my faith is strengthened because I'll either find just one more mistake they're making, which tells me they're wrong. Or two, you know, I just get, um, you know, find greater clarity in what I teach. Because again, if our if our doctrine is correct, the more scripture we learn, the more it will strengthen it. And so, um, you know, so far there's been literally nothing to shake anything. I mean, we have not even been challenged yet after seven of these videos. And so uh, I'm hoping maybe, again, I've not seen these next videos. Uh, what we just saw yesterday, when I was watching those videos, I that was the first time I had seen that. So that was those were authentic responses. There was nothing prepared. And, um, and it's the same thing with these ones as well. So I'm hoping maybe in this next video, he might acknowledge, uh, or he, maybe he'll mention how it was cut off and he'll finish his thought. That's kind of what I'm hoping because I really wanted to hear where he was going. And so again, if you haven't seen the, the previous ones, make sure you go back, watch the previous episodes first, uh, because there might be several things that he mentions that are wrong and I'm not going to take the time to address them all again. I'll probably just skip over things like that. And then two, again, Baptists don't get sensitive. We should be allowed to talk about these things, critique these things. If people want to go on a public platform and a public forum and to step outside their church and to try to be an influence, then uh, that's fine. But they need to be ready for scrutiny and for others to come along and to critique what they're saying. And that is what we've done so far. And so far we have displayed massive straw men, major misrepresentation of the pre-wrath position. Uh, and we have shown many direct contradictions of scripture, just mistakes, uh, just reciting of catechisms and saying, and not just reciting a catechism because a catechism can have something right in it. The problem is I am showing Bible verses directly contradicting the statements that he is making. And so, uh, he, he kept referring to the seals as the judgments, the seal judgments, 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 even though at the fifth seal, the martyrs are saying, how long dost thou not judge? Meaning, he hasn't started judging yet. The seals say, well, bad things are happening after the seals. Yes, Jesus is revealing bad things that are going to happen on earth in history before his return and before he pours out his wrath. 
That's what that's what we're seeing. So let's go ahead and go to video number eight. Hello, this is Ted Alexander, and I'm back with uh, another video. And uh, I want to remind you that the previous two videos, video seven and video eight, uh, need to be watched <clears throat> and viewed before uh, you begin to understand this video. They are moving one into another. And specifically, the previous video, video eight, um, it's going to be important for you to understand what was said there. I will give you a quick rundown, but in order to be able to understand what we're looking at today, uh, we're building upon our teaching. Okay, so just a real quick overview. Uh, we're dealing with the pre-trib, uh, pre-mill rapture of all the saved of the church age. In our last video, <clears throat> we dealt with uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter number 4, the rapture, and 1 Thessalonians chapter number 5. We focused on verse 9, which is pertinent to today. Uh, we focused on a lot of verses, but verse 9 is pertinent uh, to where we're at today. We said that that verse clearly states in reference to the rapture that we're not appointed unto wrath. We also stated the argument of the pre-wrathers or the mid-tribbers is that the first half of the tribulation period is not wrath. We then went over to the book of Revelation and in Revelation chapter number six, uh, we showed how that the judgments of the tribulation are beginning to be poured out in Revelation six. Uh, we then stated that, you know, that still doesn't prove that that's the beginning. That could be the halfway point where the judgments are poured out. That's the argument of the mid-tribbers. So what we did to try to prove a couple of points is we went to Matthew 24 and we showed Matthew 24 verse 15. I hope you're following along and you have your Bible now. And in verse 15, he talks about uh, when you therefore see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet. We then went back to Daniel chapter 9 and in Daniel chapter 9, we saw that that abomination of desolation takes place in the midst of the week. So three and a half years into the tribulation period is when the abomination of desolation takes place. So then we bounce back to Matthew 24, and that is where we currently are in our study. So what does all this prove? Please stay with me, and I'll attempt to tie it all together in this video, and if not, we'll have to move into yet another one to wrap up this section of our study on the pre-trib, pre-mill rapture. So in Matthew 24, we stated that uh, verse number 15, obviously, deals with the midway point of the tribulation. Now it is my contention, and we've discussed this uh, in a previous video, that Matthew 24 and 25 go in chronological order. Uh, we mentioned the events, and we'll uh, unfold these in a later video. But that being said, so what I, what the point here is, first off, is that everything you read before verse 15 is uh, the events that take place prior to the first half of the tribulation. For verse 15 is the halfway point of the tribulation period. Now I want to prove two things with this. We're going to dovetail Matthew 24 and Revelation 6. So I want you to please open your Bible to both places, put your finger in there, and we're going to flip back and forth. I want to prove a couple of things. First of all, okay, I think I understand the point that he was making now. I believe I understand the point he was making. So he is proving from Matthew 24 and Revelation 6, that the events of Revelation 6 happen before the abomination of desolation. Okay. I would agree with that on the five seals. Okay. And so there, so I, I, it, it sounds like he is under the assumption that pre-rathers think that the seals all happen after the midway point. Well, no, they don't. Okay. No, nobody teaches that. So again, 
I don't, he doesn't understand the post-trib pre-wrath position here. And let me just explain this for uh, those listening and for brother Alexander in Matthew 24, it says after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be turned to darkness and the moon into blood. After the tribulation, we see sun, dark and moon turn to blood. That's the sixth seal of revelation. And this is, and notice that happens after the abomination of desolation too. After we don't see the abomination of desolation in revelation six, but we do see it in Matthew 24, but after the abomination of desolation, then shall be great tribulation. And then we see sun, dark moon turn to blood. So that, and then we believe the rapture comes after that. So uh, that's how, how we would divide things up. So um, yeah, we're going to be here for the seals. We Nobody believes that the seals come after the second half, but you're still calling them judgments and they're not. And we've proven that they are not judgments. So um, yeah, so his, his big proof that he was going to reveal is he's proving that the seals happen before the abomination of desolation. Therefore, all of Daniel's 70th week, you know, of the seven years is tribulation. So that does not work. That does not work. This whole argument is a completely terrible argument that will not register with one pre-wrath person on the planet because um, he, he clearly does not understand it. None of them claim that all the seals happen after the midway point. We are going to prove that the events you see prior to verse 15 in Matthew 24 uh, of course, that would be the first half of the tribulation period leading up to the midway point of the abomination of desolation when that takes place. Uh, those verses in this passage in Matthew 24 dovetail with Revelation chapter 6, proving that the events of Revelation 6 are the beginning of the tribulation period. And then we're going to also prove that those events of Revelation 6 are clearly called the wrath of God, showing then that what happens here prior to verse 15 is the wrath of God. The first half of the tribulation is indeed the wrath of God. So in other words, to summarize everything we just said, in order for you to truly be a pre-wrath rapture and hold a pre-wrath rapture position, you would have to believe the rapture takes place prior to all seven years for the first half is wrath. Now I'm going to quickly turn to these and I'm not trying to go too fast to trick anyone. You can certainly watch this video a hundred times if you'd like, and you can go back and check all of this out. But I want you to notice how that you can lift up Revelation 6 and place it right down on top of Matthew 24 before verse 15, and it fits perfectly. God's showing us that the events Jesus is speaking of when he was asked these questions at the beginning of Matthew 24, he's telling us of the events of the first four horses of the apocalypse right here off the bat, okay? And so we're proving now that Revelation 6 happens prior to the halfway point of the tribulation period. That's point one, okay? So note here what Jesus says first. If you look at Matthew 24 and verse number, five, or verse number five, excuse me. He says, for many shall come in my name saying, I am Christ. Now that, those words, I am Christ, are very important. Antichrist has counterfeited the church. Antichrist has counterfeited Jews, those that they say they're Jews and they are not. Antichrist, or rather, excuse me, Satan, I should be saying, has counterfeited uh, the Word of God. And for Satan's grand finale, uh, he comes on the stage uh, filling Antichrist, and Antichrist steps out from the wings of deception, 
and says, now for my grand finale, I will counterfeit Christ. And Antichrist says, I am Christ. Jesus says, the first thing you see will be, many will come saying, I am Christ. Now those words, I am Christ, are interesting. When you go to Revelation 6 now, the first horse of the, uh, this is the first seal judgment and all of the tribulation, uh, it states here, starting in verse 2 of Revelation 6, and I saw and behold a white horse, that is the false Christ. Jesus comes on a white horse at the end of the millennial reign. And he that sat on him had a bow, that's a weapon of war, and a crown, that's a weapon of kingship or authority. He's the counterfeit Christ, Antichrist. Uh, a crown was given unto him, and he went forth conquering and to conquer. So he comes taking over, and his purpose is to set up his kingdom or to conquer. And so here is the one that comes and says, I am Christ. And Jesus said, that's what you watch for first. I am Christ. Now that's just point one, those two dovetail. Moving back quickly to Matthew 24, the Bible states in verse number six, and ye shall hear of wars and rumors of wars. In chronological order and dovetailing now yet a second point, in, Re in Revelation 6 verse 3, the Bible said, this is the second horse, and when he had opened the second seal, I heard the second beast say, come and see, and there went out another horse that was red that indicates blood, and power was given to him that sat there on to take peace from the earth, okay, so that's war, and that they should kill one another, that's war, and there was given to him a great sword that is a weapon of war. So Jesus said, the next thing after I am Christ is you're going to see wars and rumors of wars. And the Bible states the second horse brings exactly that. Moving back quickly to Matthew 24, we find then that Jesus stated next, uh, for nations will rise against nation, again, lending to that idea of wars, kingdom against kingdom. And then he says, thirdly, uh, and there shall be famines, okay? Say, uh, how can this possibly be in chronological order? Note the third horse quickly. I'm getting tongue-tied. I'm trying to move fast to squeeze all this into this video. In verse number 5 of Revelation 6, we have the third horse, and in chronological order, dovetailing Matthew 24, and when he'd opened the third seal, I heard the third beast say, Come and see. And I beheld and lo a black horse, and he that sat on him had a pair of balance in his, balances in his hand. And I heard a voice in the midst of the four beasts say, A measure of wheat for a penny, and three measures of barley for a penny, and see thou hurt not the oil and the wine. Now, a measure of wheat for a penny. A penny's a denarius, that is a day's wage. Okay, so you get a cup of meal enough to survive and not starve to death that day. Work all day just to get enough food so your belly is, it has enough in it to survive another day. That's famine, friend. And as the Bible speaks of those, uh, uh, those balances. And this, of course, speaks of weighing out of grain and, and weighing out of money. And so this is a time when everything is weighed out very carefully. There's not enough to go around. That's famine. And again, three now dovetail, proving that what Jesus says happens prior to the midway point is the first horse or the first judgments, the seal judgment. All right, let me just give you all a break right here, because here's the thing, too. I completely agree. I think we all agree about the parallel between the Antichrist, wars, famines, pestilence, martyrs. You know, I, I think we all agree with the parallel of Matthew 24 and Revelation 6. We're all on the same page. But uh, here's here's what it looks like he's going to do, because, again, this is according to the pre-trib catechism. And so let me just... Just to give her a little break, because um, from what from what you're hearing there. So what everybody does is they go to verse 17 after the sixth seal, when the sun is darkened and moon and turn to blood. That is such a key thing. Pre-trivers never want to talk about the sun being darkened and moon turn to blood. 
They don't want to talk about that. Clarence Larkin did not want to talk about it. In his timeline of events, when it gets to the sixth seal, it just says physical changes. That's all it says on there. But this is what they do. They read verse 17, for the great day of his wrath has come and who should be able to stand. Therefore, everything in the chapter was God's wrath. Uh, no, the great, they said this after the sixth seal, sixth seal, after they saw the face of him that sat on the throne. When he came in clouds and every eye saw him, that's when they said the great day of his wrath has come. Now, here's what I challenge everybody to do. I am not going to take time to do this. Go just look up all the verses about the day of the Lord. And one of the notable things you'll see about the day of the Lord, it is a time of darkness. It is a time of wrath. When you see the day of the Lord, typically you hear about God's wrath. Now, if you believe that all of the events of Revelation 6 are God's wrath, then understand that you believe in a wrath, the wrath of God coming before the day of the Lord. Now, you're going to have a tough time with that if you go off these Old Testament passages about the day of the Lord, about how that is the introduction to God's wrath. And so the reason it's mentioning that, again, if you just if you go back and just read, just look up all the references to the day of the Lord and look at all the wrath associated with it, it makes sense that when the sun is dark and moon turned to blood, then they're saying the great day of his wrath has come. So there he's gonna he's gonna go to verse 17, and just because it mentions wrath there, after the sixth seal, everything in the chapter is God's wrath. Because I'm telling you that it is. That's ridiculous. That does not even make sense. But he will he he's not the first preacher ever to do this, he won't be the last. It's a part of their catechism. Moving to the next one quickly. He said in verse number seven, again, there should be famines and pestilences, okay? And uh, you'll notice now the fourth horse in Revelation 6 and verse number seven. And when he had opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth beast say, come and see. And I looked and behold a pale horse and his name that sat on him was death and hell followed with him and power was given unto them over the fourth part of the earth to kill with the sword and with hunger and with death, that carries with it the meaning of plagues. And then he specifically says, and with the beasts of the earth. Those beasts could be anything from locusts to frogs to lions and tigers. Uh, but the Bible clearly says there's pestilences, these beasts of the earth, this death, these plagues, they come out and they torture people and kill people, okay? And so they're given power. The Bible says here uh, to kill a, a fourth part of the earth to kill with these various things. So right now, if this took place, a rapture, the, the tribulation started, we'd have over one and a half billion people dead. Uh, so, but I don't want to get wrapped up in that. What I want you to see is Revelation 6 picks up and lays right down on Matthew 24. And these verses of Matthew 24 are prior to the midway point of the tribulation. Now watch this. The major point of this video is this. What you read in Revelation 6 is not the middle of the tribulation. The judgments don't begin to be poured out halfway through. This is the wrath of God, and it is poured out at the beginning prior to the halfway point, according to Jesus, taking here a little and there a little, and line upon line and precept upon precept, we develop this doctrine again. Now we note, lastly, not only do we find that Revelation 6 and the first of the 21 judgments happens in the first half and even the beginning of the tribulation. But I would also have you note, this is the wrath of God. So to be pre-wrath, you have to believe in a pre-seven-year rapture, pre-seven-year tribulation rapture that it takes place prior to all seven years. How do you know it's wrath? 
really quickly. Verse 16, after two more judgments in the tribulation period, there's a pause and an assessment of the first six judgments. And the first pause and assessment goes like this in verse number 16 of Revelation 6. And said to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him that sitteth on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. They said, hide us from these things that are happening. This is the wrath of of the Lamb. That's what those who are going through the tribulation have to say about it, inspired of the Holy Ghost, no doubt, John giving this. Verse 17, a second time it says, for the great day of his wrath has come, and who shall be able to stand? Now that day represents not just a few events of it, but the totality of the tribulation. It's called a week, it's called uh, a day, it's called times, time and a half a time. Here specifically, times two. But here it is called the day of his wrath. That speaks to the totality of the tribulation. But the Bible says it is come now that's the first half of the tribulation dovetailing it with Matthew 24 if this is not the case then that, this would be the greatest coincidence in all of world history in all of Bible history in, in all of that I could ever possibly conceive of why would Jesus show us these things in both places putting them together we clearly see they line up and try to be teach us teaching us of a mid-trib or a pre-wrath rapture. It is just not the case. And so once again, we conclude that there is a rapture coming prior to all seven years of the tribulation period. I'm glad for that. I hope it comes today. We are leaving out of here, friend, if you're saved by the grace of God. I hope you're right with God, and I hope that you're ready. We will be back. This is not the end. We're just moving through the scriptures. Please stay tuned for video number 10. Thank you. Does anyone think that he just proved that the wrath of God is all seven years of the tribulation. Okay. So Isaiah 13, nine, behold, the day of the Lord cometh cruel, both with wrath and fierce anger to lay the land desolate. And he shall destroy the sinners thereof out of it for the stars of heaven and the constellations thereof shall not give their light. The sun shall be darkened and is going forth and the moon shall not cause her light to shine. And I will punish the world. For their evil. So notice here when we have the wrath of God, we see the sun darken and moon turn to blood again. That is a key thing. We won't even look at all the Old Testament references to that. Okay. So understand, he went to 1 Thessalonians 5 earlier. And what did it say in 1 Thessalonians 5? But the day of the Lord so cometh as a thief in the night. Right. So that, and the Bible also says, the sun will be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before that great notable day of the Lord come. The day of the Lord cannot come before the sun is darkened and moon turned to blood. That's spelled out. That's, that's irrefutable. The sun is darkened and moon turned to blood before that great notable day of the Lord. So he spent a whole lot of time in the beginning of Matthew 24 showing the parallel with Revelation 6. We all agree on that. We absolutely all agree on that. But notice we have the abomination of desolation, like he said in verse 15. And then in verse 21, this is after the abomination of desolation, for then shall be great tribulation, such as was not since the beginning of the world, this time known or ever shall be. Notice what it says in verse 29, immediately after the tribulation of those days, after the tribulation of those days. The sun shall be darkened and the moon shall not give her light. The day of the Lord has not come yet. The day of the Lord has not come yet. You know why? 
because the sun has not been darkened and the moon has not been turned to blood. That happens before the great and notable day of the Lord comes. And the, that happens after the tribulation of those days. And then shall appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven. After the sun is darkened and moon turned to blood, we see the Son of Man in heaven. In Revelation 6, we have the same order. And after the sun is darkened and moon is turned to blood, then they say the great day of his wrath has come. At the end of the chapter, after the sixth seal, and because the word wrath was there at the end of Revelation 6, he declared everything in there, the wrath of God. Listen, he's talking about line upon line, here a little, there a little. He, he's using all these terms. Is, is there a pre-tribber out there that believes that the wrath of God comes before the day of the Lord? Is there a pre-tribber out there that believes that the wrath of God comes before the tribulation? Because the Bible says after the tribulation, the sun is dark and the moon turned to blood. The day of the Lord is after that. So you cannot win this argument. This is why the dispensational pre-tribulational eschatology is one of the worst eschatologies out there. It's one of the most inconsistent. Okay, let's 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 talk about these. Please come on the program and I want you to show me, I want you to tell me that the wrath of God comes before the day of the Lord. I want you to tell me that the day of the Lord comes before the sun is darkened and moon turned to blood. I can show you scripture that directly contradicts what you were saying right there. So all that proof that he did that the seals all happen in the first half of the tribulation, we would agree with all that. The problem is we, yeah, we believe we're going here through it, but those things are not the wrath of God. He kept calling them judgments, even though I displayed in chapter six, where it's, I mean, distinctly says it's not judgment. How long dost thou not judge? I don't think those souls of martyrs were lying to Jesus under heaven or just uninformed about what was going on. I, I mean, any pre-tribber, do you want to defend what we have been hearing? Has he proven anything? And I just, I, I don't understand this loyalty to a camp, a catechism that is so easy to debunk. And folks, right, right here is why pre-tribbers do not want to come on this program and be challenged. No matter how fair I am, no matter how much, you know, I'll, I can give them the last word, no matter what, they cannot handle scrutiny. They can only stand there in an echo chamber unchallenged and pontificate a bunch of stuff and make mistakes. But when, when scrutiny comes, you know what they call it? They call it attacks. I'll probably get accused of attacking, attacking him. This isn't, this isn't an attack. This is a scrutiny. This is an honest scrutiny of videos that he put out trying to debunk what I believe is a biblical position and clearly not understanding it or misrepresenting it. So uh, we've got two more videos left. Let's go ahead and start video number nine. Hello, this is Ted Alexander and I'm coming at you with yet another video on the pre-tribulational pre-millennial rapture of all the saved of the church age. Now, Today's going to be hopefully a little bit shorter of a video. I don't know why I say that. Many times it's the same size or longer if I do. But uh, in all sincerity, I want to just deal with one verse of Scripture. And uh, there's an interesting promise, and we've gone through many, many passages of Scripture now. 
And uh, we're back in the book of Revelation. We'll be spending more time in the book of Revelation, Lord willing, in the future. But uh, I just want to throw out a quick thought. And uh, this comes from Revelation chapter 3. Now, I hope you have your Bible. Uh, grab your Bible. Turn to Revelation chapter 3. I will just remind you that uh, there's a big push today of... Uh, men out there who are becoming well known on the internet on tv on different places and uh, they're pushing a mid-trib a post-trib or what they call a pre-wrath uh, which means a lot of things to a lot of different people but at any rate what they're attempting to do is to say that there is no pre-tribulational premillennial rapture of all the saved of the church age <clears throat> we've been refuting that and i believe that uh, the lord's helped us and we've been able to uh, cover a lot of ground so far Please don't blame the Lord for what we've been hearing. Please. <laughs> this is so bad. Don't blame. Do not blame the Lord for that. Come on. We want to encourage you with yet another thought. Revelation chapter 3, one verse of scripture, verse number 10. The Bible says, <clears throat> and let me just, before we read this, let me give you context, okay? We've been through chapter 2 and 3, and so it shouldn't take long, but... Uh, Revelation chapter 2 and chapter 3 are letters to the churches. Now what that means is these were churches that were in existence at the time of John's exile to the Isle of Patmos. Christ then writes letters specifically uh, giving them to John by inspiration and these are letters he addresses the churches in these letters specifically. So the first point is these were a literal, physical, tangible, local churches. Uh, we disavow the whole concept of a universal mystical body or church. And uh, so these. So I was right. He doesn't believe in a universal church. So why are we insisting that we see church mentioned in Revelation 4 and on? So I was right about that. I knew, I knew he wasn't a universal church guy. Typically, Baptist history people aren't. They have that right about the local church. So he's acknowledging chapters two and three are written to local, visible churches. We disavow universal church, yet he's insisting a universal church doctrine be in Revelation four and on. You know, if if the uh, you know if if the post trib doctrine is true, of course it sh it shouldn't say church in there. So I'm glad he's right on this. I, I am. I, I, I'm glad that he's right. But do you realize that what, how much he just contradicted himself? I, this is a massive, massive contradiction. So it's kind of like, again, how they, they preach 1 Thessalonians 4 right at a funeral, but then they preach it wrong at a prophecy conference to prove we're you know, supposed to comfort people. They're not going to be here for tribulation. And then so he preaches universal church correctly when talking about the local churches but then when he gets to prophecy all of a sudden now we're universal church so isn't it funny how everybody's doctrine can be so solid until they get into eschatology maybe it's because your eschatology is bad my eschatology lines up with my soteriology and everything else so um very interesting that he admits that in the same series of videos. We're literal, uh, tangible, local assemblies that Christ was writing to. However, what I want you to see when you see this is that you are in a book of prophecy. And uh, many would purport, and I would uh, concur with this, uh, that as you look at these different churches and you line them up with church history, there is at the least uh, a faint shadow of the, ch the different time frames of the church age now that is not oh no all right again folks i have not seen these 
he's going to teach the seven church ages. I just, I am amazed at the depths of insanity pre-tribbers go to when it comes to prophecy. He's going to, he's going to teach seven church ages from this. I really don't, I, I really don't even feel like messing with that, but listen, how do you explain the fact that we can find all seven of these types of churches in other parts of the world today? He uses the fact that most of your Baptist churches today are very similar to Laodicean churches as proof we are in the Laodicean church age. The problem is when it comes to other religions, other denominations, you can find all these other churches in there too. And when it comes to Laodicean church age, you know, speak for yourself on that. There's a lot of churches that aren't like that. There's a lot of Philadelphia churches that are around today. There's a lot of Ephesus churches that are around today. You can find all these different churches today, but these guys, because they come from a movement of Laodiceans, they just assume we're just in that age right now. No, we're not. Absolutely not. But they use this because right before the latest, right after the Laodicean church age, what do we see? Revelation chapter four, John says, or Jesus says, come up hither. So rapture of the church. So we're in that late to see in church age. I, folks, this is just camp meeting foolishness right here. I'm sorry you're going to have to listen to this, but we said we were going to go through all of these in their entirety. So we're going to do it. Dispensationalism, that's just acknowledging uh, to some degree a shadow or typology in the word of God, which by the way, typology is all through the Bible. This is not saying that uh, the church age is divided into different sections and therefore people are saved different ways. Salvation's always by faith and faith in the Messiah alone. We understand that. But uh, to uh, not see this typology and admit many other types, uh, it, it really is kind of inconsistent. So it seems to be that these churches uh, in type or shadow would represent different periods of time throughout the church age. For example, uh, you may have heard many times preachers say, uh, we are in the, in the Laodicean part of the church age. Well, Laodicea uh, would, would represent the last part of the church age. That's, that means rights of the people. Give me a preacher that doesn't preach, a church that really doesn't stand for any doctrine, all inclusive and all of that. Give me what I want. Who cares what God wants in a church or who cares what God wants about salvation? Okay, so uh, that, that would represent Laodicea. Uh, and, and so previous to this time frame in the church age, we experienced a time of great revival. Now, I will not take time on this video to go through all of that, but I believe many of you understand that. I'll just mention one, the great separate Baptist revival, which produced the Bible Belt in America, uh, which literally changed the face of America and the world. Okay, so uh, that would be the Philadelphian church age. And what's interesting is the Philadelphians, uh, the Church of Philadelphia here in this passage of scripture was a faithful church and they were largely uh, in love with God. And uh, so uh, now considering that, considering these are literal physical churches, but there is at the very least a faint shadow and a very strongly a type. And so I want you to look at that in that context and then also remembering that this is a book of prophecy, okay? And every word God put in the Bible has a meaning, okay? And so uh, if you don't believe this is uh, typological or rather prophetic, as well as a straightforward uh, narrative that you're seeing here, uh, you're going to run into trouble. Now notice what I mean. Let's look at the Bible now with that explanation being given. Verse number 10. He says to the faithful church, the church of Philadelphia, because thou hast kept the word of my patience, okay, so they keep the word of God, that's doctrine, I also will keep thee from the hour of temptation, which shall come upon all the world to try them that dwell upon the earth, okay? Now, 
Let me state that this was a promise to the Church of Philadelphia. Nobody disagrees with that that I know of that has any kind of inkling about proper biblical interpretation. Okay, uh, But would you notice here that it says, I will keep thee from the hour of temptation. Well, uh, the news is that this church does not exist anymore, this physical literal church that this letter was written to. So what does that mean, I will keep thee from the hour of temptation? Does this mean that this specific church would not go through the tribulation? Well, certainly it means that all the saved people in this church would not have to go through the tribulation period. But uh, notice what he says here. He says, I will keep thee from the hour of temptation as though this hour of temptation was going to come upon them. Then he says, which shall come upon all the world to try them that dwell upon the earth. Now, this is very interesting, although I do believe there's a promise here that Christ would keep this church from uh, the tribulation period. Nobody, uh, again, disavows that. I do believe also there's a prophetic sense to this verse of Scripture. For example, note he calls it the hour of temptation. Now, we've already mentioned in many of these videos that Christ calls uh, the tribulation period, Daniel's 70th week, Jacob's trouble, great tribulation, the day of his wrath times time and a half a time, 1260 days times two, or times time and a half a time times two. He calls it the hour, okay? And now here it says the hour of temptation, okay? And you say, well, that could have been any temptation that local church would have been facing. It could have been except for the following words, which shall come upon all the world. So obviously there's some cataclysmic event that is coming upon the whole world and not just the Church of Philadelphia. And it is, watch this, to try them that dwell upon the earth. And so there's a time of trouble, a time of temptation coming upon this earth, the whole earth, the Bible tells us here, okay, come upon all the world to try them that dwell upon the earth. I believe this is talking about the tribulation period. This is the only thing in world history that we know is worldwide in its scope and will try the men, children of men upon this earth. And so I say that to say this, Although primarily it's a promise to one single local church, I do believe that the Philadelphian church here represents all true Philadelphian churches today. Coming down in these last days of apostasy, this could represent all true faithful churches. And the promise would be that all those saved people and all those true faithful Philadelphian churches, yes, we're in the Laodicean time frame of the church age, but understand we're Philadelphians. We're Bible believers in the last uh, Laodicean days when everybody wants the rights of the people. There's still a remnant that has not bowed the knee. And I believe the promise is to all those who live in this Laodicean time frame that are Philadelphia churches that he will keep us from the hour of temptation which shall come upon all the world. That can only mean prophetically, yes, a primary interpretation, but also a prophetic type or shadow here. Uh, and so we also believe that means that he is going to keep all true Philadelphian churches that have kept the word of his patience from this hour of temptation that is to come. That is the great tribulation. Now, you say, well, preacher, I don't believe all that stuff, and I don't believe in dividing up the church age and all of that. Well, that's all fine, and I, I'm not going to fall out with you over that. But I would ask you, what then is a good interpretation? When did this church of Philadelphia, prior to it ceasing to, uh, from, from existence, when did it go through an hour of temptation which came upon all the world? When was there a worldwide hour of temptation that tried everyone upon this earth? 
And I would state to you, that has not existed. This is a promise to all of us that are Philadelphian Christians, Philadelphian churches, as we come down to the end of, end of an age of apostasy, that God is going to keep us from this hour of temptation. And then immediately after this chapter, he goes into the rapture, then he goes into the seal judgments and the tribulation begins. It all seems to line up in a book of prophecy, which is within a book of prophecy. And so I believe this is yet just another evidence. Now, let me state something very quickly. If you don't see this, if you don't agree with this, again, I'll not fall out with you. And I do not base my theology or my biblical positions on any doctrine on types and shadows. We are simply using this verse to bolster what we've already clearly shown passage after passage in straightforward narratives and then typology bolsters or helps us maybe to see a little bit clearer what we've already proven through straightforward doctrine and narratives okay so don't say he bases all of his teachings on typology no i don't you've seen that if you watch the first several videos this is just another straw on that camel's back of pre or rather mid and post-tribulationalism, and I believe that camel is just about to break because uh, the scriptures are conclusive. We are leaving out of here all the saved of the church age prior to all seven years of the tribulation. This is another promise of that. All right. So, wow, we just had another big nothing burger. So, a couple, a couple of things. So, I'm glad he acknowledged that, yes, you do not form your doctrine around typology. That's just That can be icing on the cake. Uh, I agree with that. Okay. But at the same time, too, um, you know, there should be some consistency in that typology. So a couple of things, he also acknowledged rightfully so that, you know, yes, this was primarily directed at a specific church in that first century. Now I can't tell you what they were kept from that came on all the world back in that time. I, I can't do that. Now, could it have a prophetic implication? It very well could. All right. Now, he is going to tell you that what it's saying is that the Philadelphia churches won't go through tribulation, the seven year tribulation. Okay. What if I just said, it's just saying that we won't go through God's wrath, that that's the hour of temptation. So do you see, it says the hour of temptation has come on the world. You have to define what the hour of temptation is. It's going to come on the world by the passage. And if it primarily is referring to something that happened to that church back in the first century, well, then we we can't conclusively do that. It really doesn't matter. So if we're going to make a, you know, like a, a prophetic thing, it's just, again, it, your guess is as good as mine. You would say the seven-year tribulation. I would say the trumpets and the vials. Those are the hour of temptation. So, you know, either way, it doesn't work. Now, here's the thing. If we're going to be consistent, what about the church that he said you'll have tribulation 10 days? Is that is that symbolic of churches going through the tribulation? Uh, I mean, come on, you know, if, if we're going to use that, it, so to even even go there, it it shows just how little that you have. I mean, I wouldn't even waste my time with something like that. I don't know for sure what specifically the hour of temptation was. Here's what I do know. The Bible is clear. We will not be here for God's wrath. So we would both agree it's appropriate to use that as evidence. We're not here for God's wrath, but we still have to establish what God's wrath is. And you have not proven that the tribulation is God's wrath. 
In fact, the arguments you have made, we have showed you directly contradicting scripture to do that so it doesn't work. And so again, if this just represents the Philadelphia churches, well, does that mean that the Laodicean churches are going to go through the tribulation? Do we think that the Laodicean churches and the other churches that those people weren't saved? Listen, some of those churches had some pretty big problems, but I, but they were still churches. I believe the people in them were saved. And I believe, as you clearly seem to believe, that all the saved are going to go up in the rapture. Not just Philadelphia Christians. All saved people are going to go up in the rapture. So uh, this, you know, your, your typology falls apart. I mean, e everywhere. It just, it doesn't work. It absolutely doesn't work. Jesus promises this specific church, not all the churches, they wouldn't go through the hour of temptation since the Bible does not tell us exactly what that hour of temptation is. Okay. We cannot conclusively say that is proof of anything for the future. Ab absolutely not. So um, this is nothing. This is an absolute, complete and total nothing burger. So anyway, we are going to conclude the program for today. And this is just, this is getting disappointing. You know, typically the crazier stuff, you know, it comes later, but we're just, it was like he saved the best stuff that he had for the beginning. And it's like, I think he just really wanted to get 10 videos in. So, so far it's gotten weaker, but you know what? Credit to him. Um, he's not really started with like the ad hominem and just going into crazier heresies, even though the seven church ages, that's a, that's, that's straight out of the Schofield Bible, by the way. That is straight out of Schofield's notes. You would never get that just from reading the text ever. So anyway, I appreciate everybody watching these. And I know, I know this has probably been hard for some of you, but I think it's important to cover these things. Again, I want pre-tribbers to see this. When you get up in your church and you make and you make arguments like this and you make videos like this. You are greatly discouraging the people in your church. You are greatly frustrating people who are intelligent enough to see right through this nonsense. And you would discredit yourself in a big way. And people like myself who would prefer to defend you. And, you know, if you're right in the gospel and stuff, I like you and I'm, I'm for you. But it's like at the same time, too, I, there's just some things I can't make excuses for. And these are terrible arguments. And listen, Michael didn't even bring a railing accusation against the devil. Let's not make railing accusations against our theological opponents. Let's accurately represent them. Let's be honest with the scriptures. Let's not butcher the scriptures to try to prove our doctrine. Let's not, let's not ever misuse a passage, even to teach a true doctrine. I've heard people butcher passages to prove eternal security. And I believe in eternal security, but we don't need to butcher any passage of scripture to do that. And the fact that I never see pre-tribbers call out other pre-tribbers for foolishness like this tells me that you all are more political than you are biblical. And just like the Democrats never call out the Democrats and the Republicans never want to call out the Republicans, you know, I feel it's the same way in pre-trib world that you guys are desperate to circle the wagons with each other. And I think that's a result of just a very weak position. And so anyway... Stay tuned, one more day, one more video. So tomorrow, we might actually have a shorter episode for you because we just have one more video left. But I appreciate y'all watching these, and we will see you all next time. God bless.